So we're recording today on September 25th, Friday, and this has been one hell of a week. President Trump has refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power and repeated his vague claims about Democrats stealing the election through mail ballots. Uh, the Atlantic published a, an explosive piece about how Republicans and state legislatures are considering using their power to appoint electors, potentially override the popular vote in the states if they think those results are fraudulent. Uh, on top of all that, we're in the midst of a battle royale over a now open seat on the Supreme Court, and there are rival groups clashing in the streets in various cities. So as we keep asking, how worried should we be? Well, this week, I personally am more worried than I ever have been before. So welcome to Politics in Question, the podcast about how American political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. And this week, we have a very special guest, Jennifer McCoy, a professor at Georgia State University. Now, in trying to make sense of how worried should we be, I've been reading a lot more comparative politics literature. Um, and in that context, I, I came across the work of uh, Jennifer McCoy and her colleagues who have written uh, several incredibly insightful papers that take lessons from recent democratic collapses in countries like Venezuela, Turkey, Hungary, and some others, and, and synthesize them into what I think is an incredibly useful and actually quite terrifying from a, a domestic U.S. politics perspective framework. So I, I'm so delighted that Jennifer has uh, agreed to join us. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm very um, excited and happy to be here. Great. So let's dig into the conversation. And you know what I really like about your work and find incredibly valuable is that it, it kind of helps us to think about different types of polarization and to understand the, the differences in, between certain polarizations, which you know, might be helpful in the sense that like voters need meaningful choices uh, and some types of polarization that are quite uh, pernicious. In fact, that's the, the term you use, pernicious polarization. And I hope we can dig into that. I think, you know, in the American politics discourse, I feel like we, we throw around a bunch of terms somewhat interchangeably, polarization, partisanship, partisan polarization. You know, sometimes we add the word hyper as a modifier. I, I often call it what we have as hyper partisanship. But I think actually you have a more useful term for this kind of us versus them polarization, which I think I'm going to start adapting, which is pernicious polarization. So can you kind of help us out and talk us through how you kind of came up with this idea of pernicious polarization and how and how we should think about pernicious polarization versus perhaps other types of polarization? Sure. Um, it actually started with my longtime study of Venezuela, where I watched that country transform from an apparently stable two-party democracy, much like the United States, um, go through a period of financial and political instability um, as the parties were becoming more unresponsive to the voters and more corrupt in the 1990s, or perceived to be more corrupt. And that opened the door for the rise of a populist outsider, Hugo Chavez, who came in with promises to include the urban and rural poor who'd been invisible and marginalized. But his polarizing and confrontational strategies were really creating this us versus them tribalism in the population. It produced a backlash from the former power uh, brokers, uh, produced 
extreme political conflict. I actually ended up being a mediator there. And eventually it resulted in a failed state and the breakdown of democracy. That process worried me so much, and I saw it happening in other countries that were trying to similarly incorporate marginalized sectors of the population, like Morsi in Egypt or Erdogan in Turkey for the religious sectors, and creating a backlash and a conflict. But I also saw similar patterns of this partisan divide and the animus between the parties growing in the United States, and that made me very worried. So I started this large comparative uh, project and recruited a bunch of scholars to see if there were patterns across these very different countries in the dynamics of the polarization. And what we saw in all of the countries we studied was that political agency, the voluntary decisions of political leaders, um, not structural determinism, was, was a primary cause. So they were exploiting cleavages or grievances in the population to achieve whether they had this kind of big transformative agenda or just personal political ambition. And what we saw was that the left-right kind of ideological scale that political scientists usually use to talk about polarization as the distance in attitudes on issues or on ideology between political parties or the distance between voters or between the parties and voters was you know, increasingly not useful because the ideology or left-right scale was increasingly ambiguous in the 21st century. So, you know, in the 20th century, it was more of a classic economic ideological divide around class or the role of government in the economy or specific issues. But now what we're seeing around the world is the divides and even how people define if they're on the left or the right, their own self-definitions might be around a religious versus secular divide or around moral values or nation nationalism versus cosmopolitanism or feeling like they're part of a global community or urban versus rural interests. So what I did in this project is um, instead of looking at ideology as this distance between parties as the definition, I was looking at the division of societies into these much deeper camps based on partisan identities. And when these partisan divides become so deep that people begin to see the world in um, zero-sum terms, win and loss terms, and they begin to see their former adversaries who they used to be happy with competing against in elections, for example, but now they've become enemies that must be vanquished because they pose an existential threat, either to your way of life or to the nation. And so that's polarization with pernicious consequences for democracy. And that's how I came up with the term pernicious polarization. Julia? I've, I've thought a lot about this, these kinds of different ways to conceptualize polarization, you know, consuming other people's work. And one of my concerns about, about polarization as a framework, regardless of whether we're thinking about ideological or this more identity oriented polarization, is that it, it doesn't help us get at some of the more recent developments in American politics around um, the development of minority rule and the asymmetric consolidation of power. Or not so much that it doesn't help us get into those topics, because I think they are connected, but that it doesn't fully take that into account. And that typically these arguments about polarization suggest that some of what's driving this is kind of close, um, 
close competition and these different identity groups see, as you said, politics as a zero sum game um, and that they might that they might win all for themselves. But actually what's what's happened in the United States, I think, is that our, our institutions have allowed a kind of minority rule to emerge um, where now we see essentially um, in, in the case of 2020, Republicans controlling most of the centers of power in some way or another. So they don't control the House of Representatives, although they importantly um, control each state delegation, which is um, part of what would happen if the Electoral College doesn't win a majority. That's, the states would vote by delegation in the House. Um, they control the Senate, despite refu- uh, receiving representing fewer voters. Um, they control the presidency, despite losing the popular vote. And you also see an asymmetric consolidation of power, where, you know, it's anyone's guess, I think, why Democrats haven't done this when they've had the opportunity. Sometimes they have. Um, but we've seen a lot more activity on the Republican side in terms of, of gerrymandering for state legislatures. And here in Wisconsin, this sort of post-election power grab in the state legislature, where they actually altered the powers of the governor after the Democrat won. Um, and so this is where I've been frustrated, not so much with comparativists, but with fellow Americanists who frame polarization as um, as kind of affective and zero sum. And, you know, the two sides just dislike each other. And I think that it's distracted us from this question of minority rule. Um, I also want to talk to Dr. McCoy about populism, another topic that she's written about and that we've argued about on this podcast. Um, but I'll let uh, let her respond or James jump in for now. I'll come back to that question. Sure. Well, I do believe that polarization plays a role in what you're talking about, in how the, Repu- the incentives that the Republican Party faces to address their minority position and to use these minority institutions, as you were saying. So we have the U.S. is, is somewhat peculiar relative to the other countries we've talked about. What we concluded on the comparative study was that electoral majoritarian institutions or systems contribute to pernicious polarization. When you have, again, those political actors that are using polarization as an electoral strategy, they're advantaged by majoritarian institutions and they use those. So by that, I mean what we do have in the United States, single member districts, plurality elections or runoff elections in some cases. So that is giving, that's contributing to the perception of a winner take all. And it also creates a lot of disproportionate um, advantage to the majority party depending on the rules used. So what we found was that in other countries, we, the leaders who came in and had this polarizing strategy would attempt to increase their advantage by engineering the electoral rules to give them an even greater advantage uh, over the other parties. Now, the U.S. also has the peculiarities of these very counter-majoritarian institutions that you're talking about, the Electoral College, but also the Senate. And so what happens is, I think the problem is, so we've had this from the beginning. The problem today is that in part because of the sorting of our political parties, particularly geographic sorting, that those institutions of the Senate and the Electoral College, which give disproportionate representation to smaller populous rural states, are now advantaging the Republican Party because they were sorted into rural versus urban parties. And that 
you know, wasn't necessarily the case, um, you know, 50, 100 years ago. So this sorting is contributing to the affective polarization as well, because the sorting is around identities. And not only your geographic identity, but your religious identity, your racial identity, your values. So I see them together and the incentives are now under polarization for political, the, the electorate becomes more immobile because we so much dislike the other party it, that most leaders are not gonna try to go toward that median voter, go toward the center to try and broaden their outreach. Instead, they're gonna double down on their own supporters and to turn out their base and that's their strategy to win. If you don't have a majority, then turning out your base is not sufficient and you have to add to that dissuading other voters from coming, from coming out. And that's what leads to voter suppression or the election engineering to try to disadvantage opposition parties relative to your own. So that's how I would say that, that they are combined and not at all ignoring sort of asymmetric polarization is what you're talking about, or the use of these minority institutions. It, the incentives come from the structure and from the state of polarization that we're in. I think this is really fascinating. All of it's really fascinating. And I've long been um, of the belief that we in America and especially those who study American politics don't spend enough time thinking about the issues with which we grapple from a comparative perspective. But, and that's the nature of my question, though, and I'm going to kind of argue against myself here for a second. And the question that I have is, to what extent are the lessons that we can learn from other nations not applicable to the American experience or maybe not ap applicable in the same way? And I guess I start this by, by kind of going back to how we think about conflict and whether conflict is good or bad, or is there a point at which good conflict becomes bad conflict? And I, I tend to think that this is too simplistic of a frame for understanding the, the root issue here, which is conflict. And so, and that's because I think there's different kinds of conflict that arise whenever people come together to make collective decisions based on the method by which they resolve those differences. And one is politics, political conflict, and politics being the method, negotiation, bargaining, persuasion, those types of things. And the other one is violence, uh, violent conflict, and it's force. It's, the, it's about the, applic uh, the application of force, and it's rule as opposed to politics. And out of uh, politics, you get compromise, which emerges out of conflict. You can't have compromise without disagreement. And out of uh, violent conflict, you get rulership. And if we go and we begin to get to where we're talking about our political institutions now, political conflict requires institutions, it seems to me, or venues or spaces or places where equals can engage in uh, negotiation and bargaining with one another, where they can jockey, where they can do things. Not all noble, some underhanded, you know, in a William Riker sort of way. Sometimes you just structure the world so you can win and you persuade people or you just make them believe they have no choice but to support you even if they're not persuaded. And the institution then, though, needs to be bolstered and protected so it doesn't collapse when people 
disagree. It can't be conquered. And this is the age old problem that Americans, I mean, that mankind has always grappled with, which is how do we get out of this cycle whereby we think we're doing it the right way. And then all of a sudden we have rulers, whether it's one guy, a whole bunch of people, a bunch of rich people, it doesn't matter. Um, and we slip into kind of the violent application of force. And this is the key secret, I think, of America. And that we ended up creating a space in the first time in human history that was ostensibly permanent, that could not be conquered by one, the few, or the many. And the secret to that was, in fact, conflict, right? Conflict is what ultimately bolsters uh, the space. As, you know, as Madison says, the regulation of all of our different factions and interests and all of these different things, it involves the spirit this um, of party and faction and the necessary and ordinary operations of government. Without conflict, our government doesn't work. And so I guess I, my question is, to what extent America is not a nation state? It, it can't be understood in theoretical terms in those ways. And to what extent, when we look at nation states, when we look at other places, and we see the, their susceptibility to um, to violent conflict, to slipping back into the plebeian cycle, to what extent should we um, qualify what we take away from that when we then turn to the American experience? And I'm not saying that there's nothing we can take away. I'm just wondering, to what extent do we need to qualify it? Well, I would say there are um, several things. One is you know, as uh, comparativists have been the ones that had been raising the alarm for the last several years, much more loudly than Americanists. And our perspective is, you know, Americanists who only study the U.S. system tend to, you know, believe in American exceptionalism and, um, you know, think that we, that our institutions are in fact resilient. And, and, and the point of looking at other countries is not that they have the same history, um, the same long uh, democratic experience, or the same level of institutions or the same stability of the constitution, which yes, the US certainly has all those things. Our point is that nothing is inevitable and these institutions do depend on the norms that people are talking about so much now and that resilience depends on political will as well as you know, rules written on a piece of paper. And the political will can change and will vary. And we can see cycles over the course of history. But what we're seeing now in the 21st century is a pattern of democratic erosion that is happening gradually within democracies, being carried out by democratic leaders and according to democratic rules, using them to distort institutions and rules to their advantage. And it's gradual and people often are complacent and don't realize what's happening until it's too late to stop it. So that's the warning that comes from these other situations, these other countries, even though they may not have, you know, they, they may not be comparable in terms of their democratic experience, you know, length of time, durability or or um, strength of institutions. So I think that's the warning. But the other thing that we can learn is that as the patterns, the logic of polarization develops, a kind of polarization that I'm talking about, it creates incentives that are similar in all of the countries, no matter what the context, very different cultural or economic level of development uh, contexts. And that is when people are sorted into two camps 
so that we are reinforcing our cleavages and erasing the cross-cutting ties. That's what leads to the dangerous dynamics that we're seeing of the increase, the psychological antipathy uh, and the stereotyping and prejudice, the lack, the, the, the falling away of communication and interaction, so the growing suspicion of the other, and the, the rest of the, you know, eventually ending up in this sense of existential threat that makes people willing to support democratic erosion or violation of democratic norms because they would rather trade off their principles, their democratic principles, to keep their guy in power or to get those people out of power and put ourselves in power instead because the other side is such a threat. That's what we see is a very common uh, dynamic. And that changes the incentives for the political actors. So, uh, you know, certainly I agree, conflict, yeah, but democracy is a system to manage conflict peacefully. And when the systems, when the norms and the inst and, and no longer, when they break down, when those, that political will to engage in negotiation with an adversary rather than to try to conquer or eliminate your competitor as an enemy. That's the difference between normal democratic competition and conflict and the kind of pernicious uh, polarization that I'm talking about. Yeah, and Lee, let me just, uh, and I think that's great, and I'm gonna try to try to clarify this for my own thinking a little bit, because I agree with you 100% on the problem. Uh, and I agree with you on the warnings, I'm just not, so, I mean, what Madison tells us in Federalist 48 is the very end. It's kind of depressing. The conclusion which I am warranted in drawing from these observations is that a mere demarcation on parchment of the constitutional limits of the several departments is not a sufficient guard against those encroachments which lead to a tyrannical concentration of all the powers of government in the same hands. He's telling us parchment barriers don't work. Norms don't work. Rules don't work. And it's what makes our institutions resilient and what has made our institutions resilient throughout their history is the commitment to go to those institutions and try to win. Ambition, counteracting ambition. And people have been, it seems to me, that's conflict, right? And, and I think what's interesting is that we are no longer fighting each other in those institutions. And I'm wondering how much it is because we think fighting each other is bad. And you know, people, Americans, it seems to me, have been very sorted from the very beginning for a very long time. And in fact, they were probably on certain issues, much more sorted than we may be today. So I guess what I'm grappling with is, you know, is it, you know, is it comedy or does the communication and compromise emerge out of the struggle? And I think it's the latter. And but and so because of that, I'm not sure that polarization itself is the thing that undermines there. I think there's something else, I guess, is what I'm trying to get to. Something else beneath that. It's polarization certainly exacerbates it, but it's the commitment to fight each other and try to win inside our institutions, it seems to me, that creates the the, the real problem. Yeah, well, I, th I think that it's that gets back to the political will and it gets back to, again, political agency and political actors who may have a perfectly noble agenda. Like I said, this, a transformative agenda. And, you know, you need disruption to change things and to change things for the better, to improve democracy, to improve social justice, to get rid of inequities. So 
So we want disruption at some points, and that can be very conflictual. But if it gets, when it, when it gets out of hand through this dynamic that I'm talking about, it may have the unintended consequence, even of those leaders, uh, those original actors, or even movements, uh, that they do get locked into this, almost a trap, this polarization trap of a tit for tat that just uh, brings everybody um, down a rabbit's hole. And so I would give an example of the, the whole filibuster over, over judicial appointments in the Senate, starting back with Harry Reid's 2013 um, decision to remove the filibuster for uh, federal judicial appoint, appointments and ending up with removing it for the Supreme Court. So a, a tit for tat strategy can very well end up um, in that sense. But the willingness to engage in politics requires leaders willing to do that. And leaders, if you go back to Newt Gingrich in the 90s, coming into the Congress with a scorched earth kind of strategy, or Mitt, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell you know, in 2010 saying his over, over, overarching goal in the Senate was to prevent Obama from you know, legislative victories. If, if you take an obstructionist point of view for the benefit of your own party, then we can't have that kind of conflict with the institutions that are going to end up with a solution, you know, a negotiated solution that you're talking about. So it does depend a lot on, I think, on, on political will and agency. And then what happens, how this gets translated into the electorate and particularly when the partisan conflict becomes such a social identity that it enters in and infuses into social relations so that we're seeing in Venezuela, we saw the capital city divided, you know, geographic division, one part Chavista, another part anti-Chavista. And when you see universities labeled as one or the other or media organizations labeled as one or the other, that's when we get into this pernicious level that prevents the institutions from working as they should uh, in, in, a, in our society. That's a perfect segue to the question that I want to ask. And, and I've called this dynamic the uh, two-party doom loop, as, as listeners of this podcast probably know. But the, the question I have is, is, what does the opposition do? And it seems like you know, in, in, in all of these, these cases that politics, I mean, it gets divided, but it, it seems like it gets divided in a particular way with a kind of uh, one party representing the party of grievance and a sense of, of left behind or, you know, uh, sort of, I guess, grievance is probably the best way to describe it. And then the other party is sort of the, the more cosmopolitan party, more of the sort of traditional elites. And uh, th that's that's the binary. It seems like that's kind of what's happening mostly in the U.S. as well. So, you know, we're right now having this debate uh, among Democrats as to like, well, how, how do we respond if we should get back the, the unified government? Uh, and there's there's, you know, more and more, I think, of a consensus that Democrats should play hardball back. But in, in your analysis, you kind of talk about this, uh, what, what I might call the opposition's dilemma. And I, you know, I consider that I mean, there, there's one party that's kind of authoritarian in these, a lot of these dynamics. There's the other party that more wants to maintain kind of existing democratic structures, maybe make them more democratic. 
But, you know, and, and to, to Julia's point that maybe if the problem is minoritarian governance, then we just need to have majoritarian governance. Uh, and that would mean like maybe adding D.C., adding Puerto Rico as states, uh, abolishing the Electoral College, maybe increasing the size of the House, which would also have the effect of equalizing the Electoral College. And you kind of warn against this this escalation. But on the other hand, you, you warn that, you know, the, the opposition party, you know, if, if they try to compromise, it just legitimizes the authoritarian party. So I wonder if you could talk us through how the opposition responded in countries like Venezuela, Hungary, uh, Turkey, and then if there's any advice you have for Democrats that comes out of those experiences, I think everybody would like to hear that. Sure. Yeah, we've been working on, uh, my co-author, Marat Somer, and I have been working on really opposition strategies uh, more recently. And what I want to say is that the first cases that I talked about, a case like uh, Turkey, like Egypt, like Venezuela, the initial reaction of the opposition to a, a transformative actor coming in who is trying to include some new sector and the mistake that that transformative actor usually made was acting unilaterally. And so you might say, okay, they had some, you know, worthwhile aims. It wasn't just, you know, personal power or corruption or anything, but with taking a confrontational strategy, a, um, uh, in a unilateral, you know, uh, role, if they had the majority to impose their will, that created a backlash. So the initial reaction in Turkey, in Venezuela, was to try to stop the leaders rather than negotiating, you know, some reforms and, you know, acceptable reforms along the way. It was to stop the leaders. And so that just escalated the conflict. Uh, and Venezuela escalated it immediately toward to end up in a, in a coup attempt. Can you tell us what happened in Venezuela? Yeah, so yeah, so Hugo Chavez was elected in 1998 after a decade of really kind of financial um, crisis and volatility and poverty was zooming up. And this had been a pretty rich middle class country uh, before this. And so the people were just rejecting all of the traditional parties. It was throw all the bums out. And he came in as an outsider. He'd actually led a coup attempt earlier. He came from the military against another elected president. But he came in as the outsider and won big and said, okay, I'm going to revamp, I'm going to restore democracy to this country. And he started out by having a new institution, a new constitution written that, you know, kind of increased his own power, but also had some other things, some strong human rights in there and some other things, but really increased presidential power. And there was a, an initial backlash, major, uh, massive marches, um, and uh, eventually a, a coup attempt, and that failed. And then there was uh, a major strike. The petroleum industry was shut down by the opposition, by the managers of the petroleum industry. Everyone thought all of this pressure would bring Chavez to his knees, force him to resign, but it didn't. He stayed in, he survived. And the final coup d'etat for the opposition mistake was this is after the course of five years now, they boycotted an election to the legislature, to the National Assembly, giving Hugo Chavez 
100% control over the National Assembly. From there, he could change all the laws. He named the entire Supreme Court. He named the Electoral Commission. He got control, legally got control of all institutions and then began to take over the media and stuff. So I'd say the first thing is that, in, that a backlash or a tit-for-tat strategy, like I described, you know, the, the, the dilemma over the Supreme Court in the United States, usually does not end up benefiting the opposition. And it can end up strengthening the, um, the original, you know, polarizer in power, like it did with Hugo Chavez. Or it can end up, if the opposition wins, so Thailand is a case where eventually, after some conflicts back and forth, the military just came in throughout the government. And, and so the, basically, the old elites came in through the military throughout the, the, uh, the newcomer government. And uh, we had authoritarian government for the last five or six years. So that's the bad thing to do. Okay, what are positive things? Well, what we're looking at are basically two kinds of policies. One would be actually using a repolarizing, repolar, re so using polarization, but around a democratic principle or a social justice principle. It's more of that disruptive polarization I talked about before, but trying to shift the axis. And so you don't wanna focus on throw the bad guy out. That was another one of the Venezuelan uh, mistakes. The opposition was all about anti-Chavez. What they failed to do was to adequately offer their own vision. What were they going to do for the people? And because a lot of people had voted for Chavez because they thought the old political establishment, you know, was ignoring them. And so when the opposition, which included some of the old political establishment and a few new people, were fighting against Chavez just by saying, we're better, just trust us. We're not gonna tell you how, but we're better. Throw that guy out. That's not enough. And they also were denigrating the Chavez supporters, you know, calling them ignorant, calling them animals, calling, you know, saying they were manipulated by Chavez, that they didn't have any of their own agency. So they were insulted. So they wouldn't vote for the opposition. They didn't trust them, even when they began to be dissatisfied with Chavez. So this is, you know, you can draw a lot of parallels to what we're seeing in the United States. So what we're suggesting instead is to be, you could repolarize, but around a principle like democracy or social justice or so that would be a transformative repolarization that's not demonizing the other side or you can depolarize trying to build bridges um you know move more toward the center so i kind of pose those two options as okay you had the bernie sanders elizabeth warren attempts to repolarize in the sense of, of, of really transformative, you know, structural change, or the Biden approach of depolarizing, let's, you know, let's all be friends kind of approach. And I thought this will be a great experiment to watch. Okay, is one of these going to be more successful than the other in the United States? And of course, we've chosen the depolarizing side with, with Biden. And so we'll see how that goes. But if you choose the depolarizing side, then 
there's always the question of to what extent do you legitimize bad behavior by entering into the contest with the other side? Now, I'm not saying that's the case here in the United States. I'm saying that's a question that's raised in countries like Venezuela, where it's gone so far off the charts that we're talking about a true authoritarian government. And that debate becomes if we don't criticize them, calling them out on um, undemocratic principles, are we, or if we participate in elections with them, are we legitimizing them? So that's a dilemma for countries that are further down the road. The other kind of mistake that people make in uh, a depolarization strategy is a passive de depolarization strategy where they are afraid to criticize because they don't want to increase the conflict or the conflictual language, or the opposition becomes so weak demoralized, fragmented. That happens in a lot of cases. That happened in Turkey, that happened in Hungary, that happened in Venezuela for many years. And then they just can't compete. So it's kind of letting the, the government uh, increase its, its power and become a, a very hegemonic government. Yeah, so I wanted to, I think, build, I think the Elizabeth Warren comparison and the idea of changing up the script um, kind of segues into what I wanted to talk about uh, with regard to populism. And I, I want to I defend American exceptionalism in a very specific way. I mean, I was trained in American political development, and that's a subfield of American politics that both takes comparison seriously, and especially has been kind of forged in comparison between the United States and other advanced industrial democracies. So not so much some of the comparisons we've been talking about here with Latin America and more comparisons with um, with Europe or Canada, um, Australia, places like that. And that the observations of that subfield have sort of tried to look at why the United States tends to tends to look different in like important policy areas. It obviously when I was studying American political development as a grad student in the early 2000s, we weren't really talking about American democratic decline. But we were talking about very distinctive elements of institutions, of of our kind of the way in which our federal state was built. And so that is, I think, my thinking is that American politics is exceptional from some of these other potentially comparable countries because of its because of its size because of its federal structure because of its racial history and in that case we're probably we probably are closer to some of these latin american um cases and, and brazil probably is is uh, strikes me as the the best comparison just in terms of those types of variables but what i think is is interesting about american politics now and i think is related to our institutional structure is a specific way in which populism has emerged on both the, the right and the left almost simultaneously and in a way that's not like, obviously linked to um, a, a kind of acute economic crisis. So we did not see Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump come out with populist rhetoric in 2008 or 2010. We saw it in 2016. That might be idiosyncratic, but I think it also is is related to our institutional structures. One of the, the longstanding ideas in American political development is that the nature of our, our state, um, our kind of limited and patchwork federal state, is that it's not always very responsive. And that's, that's the case with our institutions as well. Um, not always very responsive. And I think you see that the reason you saw this as kind of a delayed reaction to 2008 is exactly for this reason, that there was a sense that Barack Obama and this new government were going to do something about it. And there were even people who 
who identified as Republican or independent who initially were, I think, somewhat hopeful and supportive of of some kind of action coming out of the Obama administration. And quickly that all broke down. Um, and that administration was not, it was not able to create transformative change or even really address a lot of the issues on the agenda. Um, and I think that, and that I think is what gave rise to this anti-institutional populism. And I think this is one of the challenges of populism in the United States is that it's, it's deeply anti-institutional and sometimes it's, you know, not, I think not very helpful, but it also is criticizing something that, that needs to be critiqued. But the other thing that really strikes me about American populism is that everybody has a claim to grievance and everybody has a claim that the other people have more power. So I described earlier that Republicans control the governing institutions. Um, Republicans are also, I think, traditionally closer to the corporate and business community. But Democrats do control these kinds of cultural institutions. And that's, you know, we do have a, a kind of legacy media that's associated with maybe kind of a center left perspective. And then how do we think about how do we think about these kinds of institutions? How do we think about these kinds of grievance claims against um against institutions that may be flagging. Like these are these are some of the questions I think about in terms of populism is like how everybody in the United States claims that they they have a grievance and they're the ones frozen out of power and it's you know it's really the corporations or it's really the media. Um, and I know that um, Jennifer that you've written quite a bit about populism and some about kind of it's it's more pernicious effects to your to your other work but also um, I think that you've uh, written a pretty nuanced take so I'm curious if you have any reaction to that well yeah you, you said a lot there so um, yeah let me try to react I, I first do want to say that I think that there's another point of exceptionalism in the United States that is not just an institutional in our in our federal system which I agree. Uh, with you, it, it, it's more like Brazil than you know than the European countries, but it's also a cultural factor of our extreme individualism, which I think plays a lot into understanding the United States versus almost any of the other countries that we have mentioned today. Um, yeah, that's a great point. I think. Yeah, and and Brazil, just comparing Brazil, has the same federalism that we do, but it has a very weak party system, and so there's there's a major difference there. And so it's only recently, uh, it hasn't polarized uh, until very recently when you know a series of corruption scandals opened the door to the current uh, far right populist uh, government of Bolsonaro. Um, so populism in the U.S. Uh, I would say is, is not the major problem. And in fact, a lot of people who study populism would say Donald Trump is only a, a mediocre populist because populism has, uh, according to the definition that I use and that others use, which is a, an ideational um, definition, is that populist, populist leaders use rhetoric that is pro-people, anti-elite, and Manichaean in the sense of a moral divide between the good, virtuous, homogeneous people and the evil malicious elite. So what Donald Trump lacks is the pro-people portion. When you listen to his, his own speech, his campaign rallies, it's about himself and not about the people. So that's, that's one slight difference, but he has, he has the rest of it. Um, so, so how, how did he arise? I, 
I think that, yeah, it's, it's, it's not specifically, certainly there was the aftermath of the economic crisis, the 2008 economic crisis, but I think it goes much further back. And that's why I go back to at least the Gingrich times and really to Reagan, I think, with the, the strategies of the, um, or let's say back to Nixon with the Southern strategy, um, you know, to, to capture the South from the Democratic Party and the inroads being made, you know, started this sorting in, into the, of the political parties. And that we have now, you have to look, you know, it's a much longer term kind of evolution of developments that include uh, demographic change. And I do think that there is something to the, the theory of group status threat that le led into the reaction, the immediate vociferous reaction to Obama's election. And you know all of the studies that have shown the role of racial resentment as well. So I think there's that we have to look at that and the fear of demographic change um, of groups of people. And then if you go into uh, what you said about so uh, an anti-institutionalism coming out of Obama's failure to to bring the two sides together, yeah, he failed in his dream of going above party, but in large part because of the obstructionism of the Republicans that had come, had been a strategy for the last 15 years, um, you know, like starting with Gingrich's strategy in the mid 90s, I think. So, so you have to, you have to take all of that into account. And so thinking about populism here, it isn't so much you know, I, I don't think we see so much, particularly from Trump, this idea that that the people are, you know, this this virtuous people, and he's, you know, he, he's claiming a mandate from them. We do, and what we see that he picks up from most populists I've studied abroad is the claim that he is the representative of the real Americans, and so he restricts. He has the exclusionary type of populism which in contrast to an inclusionary type that we see on the left from Hugo Chavez and others in Latin America, which is broadening out and trying to bring the marginalized people in, the exclusionary type of populism identifies who the people are by saying who is not an American, who is not a rightful citizen. And so that's why you see so much anti-immigrant talk among European right-wing populists or Donald Trump. But the other thing that that Trump follows in the populist rhetoric kind of philosophy is an anti-pluralist philosophy and saying basically, since I represent the real Americans, if I lose the election, it can only be because there's fraud. And that's when we get into the attempts that we're seeing now to discredit the election process ahead of time which I also have seen in many countries where I've done election observation and where leaders will say, the only way I can lose is if there's fraud and lay the basis ahead of time. So, so Trump is, that's a typical populist kind of message to say, I am the unique representative of the people. The people are this defined group. In this case, it's a rather restricted group of the hardworking, you know, real Americans. And it, it has this pernicious consequence of creating the distrust in the electoral process. And 
your point about the Democrats, do they control other institutions? Yeah, sure. They control media, cultural institutions, Hollywood, things like this. They, they certainly have a strong, let's say not control, but influence. On the other hand, you know, labor organizations are tremendously weakened. So some of the traditional organizational strength has been very much weakened um, for the Democrats in the United States. The question about who, who actually controls institutions and who is perceived to control them and like which of those is more important, I think is a little bit, is a little bit fuzzy, but yeah, you know, that, that all, that all makes sense. And I'm, um, I look forward to reading more of your, your work on populism. I'm going to let Lee and James jump back in. Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely going to look forward to, to engaging in this more because you have gotten me thinking and I, and as I, one of the last questions I want to ask her, I think I want to return to this theoretical thing, uh, the theoretical lens, because I think that's another area in addition to the comparatives that Americanists have uh, woefully neglected uh, to the point that I'm not sure we're thinking about politics in the right way. But it ultimately comes down, it seems to me, to virtue versus conflict. And virtue by its very, if you adopt the view that virtue is what makes the world go round and freedom exist, then that is by its very nature it involves the question of, well, how do you know what is, is the good, the true, and the beautiful? What's the common good? How do you define it? And I think that's the secret that Madison brought to the table, which was conflict creates a process whereby we can engage in politics, bolster these institutions, and ultimately discern what he calls justice and the general good. And when you have this notion of constitutional forbearance and about maybe too much ambition is bad ambition, then all of a sudden you stunt, it seems to me, that process in our system. And we have today, and I agree 100%, I want to add, on the problem. I think that we have a huge problem right now. I'm just, again, coming back to the cause. And if we think about Derrida, which is a bit odd for a conservative to bring up Derrida, but I think I love Derrida. I'm going through a very curious time in my life now. But he tells us, you negotiate the non-negotiable. There is nothing else. We cannot impose a standard of the common civic good on our political processes. It has to emerge out of those processes. I think what, so, I mean, maybe there's like a categorical imperative of politics, which is you have to be willing to participate in politics. And that, I think, gets to the problem. Because a willingness to engage in politics is not a willingness to agree on some predefined common good. Rather, it's a willingness to go to the places where we agree that that's where we make our decisions and then do everything you can to win. But as long as you're doing it within those institutions, you're participating in politics. And when you participate in politics in institutions, you need rules because they're leveraged. They're not constraints. They give you, they're like, as Hannah Arendt calls them, islands of predictability, if you will. But they allow you to project into the future. Uh, I forget the guy's name, maybe Nicholas Rowe, an economist and philosopher who wrote very differently about rules. They aren't constraints. They allow people to make threats against one another, to compromise, to get a little something, to settle, to do all sorts of things. But today, we don't think of politics in those ways. We think of it in terms of progress to the promised land. We have a predefined conception of the common good, and politics is meant to get us there. It's not a form of government. It's not a never, an, an always ongoing, never-ending activity in which we participate. And we begin to think of it in, I think, very Marxian terms in both the left and the right as production. We think about politics as producing a common good. And the people that are participating in it are assembling a product that has been designed elsewhere. They're building widgets. And when you think of it like that, you begin to see the rules as means to an end. 
And when you see rules as a means to an end, then the institutions are just going to become means to ends and you'll rationalize them and you'll change your position like in the nuclear option and the filibuster on elections. If it goes your way, it's great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Why? Because it's just a simple mean to an end, the end being the policy or the common good. And we no longer define that in the system. So, I mean, I'm wondering if is the polarization trap that you talk about, is it only a problem when we have this view of politics that is a very Marxian production, politics is production view? Because it seems to me we have had lots of intense conflict in our history, lots of a really intense conflict. And we've also done at those times really interesting things. And we've done really big things. And I may not like all of them, but the Constitution wasn't written to make James Walner happy, unfortunately for me. But I mean, I'm wondering is what's the difference between past periods of American polarization where there's extreme violence in certain sectors of our society and the commitment to politics remains resilient and we do great things and the difference today where it seems our commitment to politics is very low and we uh, and, you know, I don't I'm not sure the violence is as great as it was in the past, but I agree. I think our institutions are in a lot of trouble. I mean, how do I what am I missing here or am I just crazy? I don't know. Help me understand. So, James, I think I agree partially with you and just starting with this idea of negotiating the common good. Certainly, we have to update our vision of the common good, and that does happen through politics. And, and for the United States, it's absolutely critical, uh, as we know, and as Julia knows from American uh, development, political development, the United States was built on a compromise, basically sacrificing the rights of African American politics that has continued you know, repeatedly throughout American history until recently. So now we are updating this sense. And I think this summer was about updating the sense of what is the common good and what do we mean? Where I think I disagree with you is that what you presented sounds like we don't even need a basic underlying agreement on a social contract. And I think we do. I think any society does. And usually it should be built around some common value, such as the constitution of a country, but it's got to be, it's got to entail something about what is that common good. One of the things that we found in our study of polarization is that the most pernicious and entrenched polarization seems to arise around time periods when a country polarizes around what we called formative rifts, unresolved debates from a, from a country's founding or maybe refounding after a civil war or authoritarian period around citizenship and identity. So for the United States, those unresolved debates had to do with race, religion, and also rights of women. And so as those have come up in different periods of time, as the forefront, on the forefront of the political agenda, we have emerged into extreme conflict. Now, we do need disruption for, the part where I agree with you is the politics of change, the kind of as you, you describe it as conflict, um, but politics as conflict. As I said before, we do need disruption for change. And so I'm not for just an easy, let's all get along kind of thing when we're trying to bring about a transformative change. But we, the question is, how do you constrain that kind of uh, conflict and, and trying to pose 
an issue over a single dividing line, which is a part of the process of polarization? How do you constrain it or limit it before it erupts into the pernicious kind which locks in the actors? And one of the things I haven't said yet is that the process of polarization changes the actors themselves. And so what we've seen, and I saw this very clearly when I was trying to mediate in Venezuela as well, that when you get in this pretty severe polarization and the society is divided, then the actors themselves are transformed to become even more uh, dogmatic and authoritarian because the radical voices drown out the more centrist voices or moderates within their own camp. And anyone who tries to cross the divide, to cross the aisle and negotiate with the other side or open a dialogue is labeled a traitor or a sellout. And so those voices become weak, the, the, the ones who are willing to negotiate and play politics as usual, and the more radical voices uh, get stronger. And so the, the, the political parties or the movements themselves change, the actors change. And that's another part of what makes it so difficult then to overcome. I want to ask a final question and then I'll, I'll let us all conclude with some reflections. And the final question builds on what you just said about us getting caught in this uh, binary over our, uh, what, what is the, I think, is the formative rift in the United States over the question of who is included in, in the political community. And I want to ask you, based on the, the comparative work, like how, how deep are we into this downward slide? Is there space to, to climb out? And you know, I want to build on what you said before about Joe Biden as being the sort of depolarizing candidate. And if you, know, if you had a chance to sit down with him as, and his campaign and recommend a depolarizing strategy, what would you what would you say to them? Yeah, sure. And I and I did want to say before that um, a couple of successful cases that we just saw in Hungary and Turkey were after the opposition had been kind of out in the cold for many years. They finally had successes in the past year in mayoral races against the um, the long term you know governing party, and they both what they both did was unify a fractured opposition. So they have multiple parties, multiple personalities, you know, creating their own parties even. But they unified, and in Turkey especially, there was a message of radical love, which was an actual political strategy that they carried out. Of um, Cory Booker for president. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and that actually won, that, that strategy won. So th that, that is one of these more active depolarizing strategies. What I would say to uh, Joe Biden are several things. First, don't engage either during the campaign or after. Don't engage in retribution or vilifying the other side. Do guarantee that you will govern for all, not just your own party's supporters. Do focus on the shared values and needs of the citizenry. Obviously our shared constitution, our shared citizenship, but the health and welfare of all. And I think he really needs to, and the Democrats, if they do get the trifecta um, you know, that you're posing, they do need to give immediate attention to structural reforms, I think, to update the relics of our constitution. I think this is near and dear to your heart, Lee, but yes. I would favor, for example, 
the Supreme Court, you know, we are almost unique in the world in having lifetime appointments. Everyone else has term limits, uh, to, you know, most, most other established democracies to speak of. So I would favor term limits over trying to expand the Supreme Court, which I think can just get into a tit for tat thing. I also, for the electoral system to, to reduce this winner take all um, perception that we have of a majoritarian election system, I would definitely change to ranked choice voting and perhaps creating multi-member districts. We need to give more voices a chance. We need to break up the duopoly of our two traditional parties. And the Electoral College, if we can't abolish it, I do view it just as a relic, an antiquated relic that no longer applies. I would at least encourage states, individual states, to move to a proportional representation um, you know, system of, a, of, of their electors representing the actual vote. And then finally, I would say for the consensus promoting mechanisms that we do have or that we have had that are are breaking down that are not working well. Of course, it's just a, the, the norm, not a constitutional rule, but just the norm of having a supermajority in certain decisions in the Senate, which is what the filibuster and closure rule kind of created was the possibility of having requiring a supermajority for, for uh, decisions. I would keep that or just change it, just require a supermajority, 60% vote for critical decisions like lifetime appointments or long-term appointments, a judicial appointments. But I would get rid of it for ordinary legislation. So basically the opposite of what we have right now on that, on that position. I think that's a brilliant plan and I hope uh, that Team Biden is listening to this. And I think it's, you know, I'm just going to offer uh, conclude, some concluding thoughts here and then we'll, we'll just do, do a quick round. And I, I mean, I think one of the things that it is, I think, so challenging for a lot of folks in American politics is uh, kind of not really understanding that there's something to, to learn from the experiences of other democracies. And yes, James, there, and there's a lot of American exceptionalism, but it, it seems like what we're experiencing in the United States is actually part of a pattern that is actually pretty consistent uh, across declining democracies. And, you know, I, I think the, the, the insights uh, of Dr. McCoy here and, you know, and her colleagues and other comparatives are, are just so important in understanding this current moment. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be, to be with us here. Uh, Julia, James, and, and then Jennifer, do you want to bring us home? Yeah, I just want to really thank Jennifer for, for joining us. This has been a really interesting conversation. I've, I'm kind of thinking again about how we engage with comparativists and also about some of some of these ideas for um for repolarization i really like this idea of transformative repolarization and depolarization are you know i think this is one of the questions that um we contend with in american politics is is really how to how to address the situation so these are solutions i'll be i'll be thinking about and thinking about how they might apply in the american context so thank you jennifer and and thank you so much for for joining us today and you've really given me a lot to think about you know and, and and also kind of the agenda of my thinking moving forward and especially you know this notion of how to escape this trap and the lessons from american history are plenty i mean you can you know the era of good feelings i mean you can literally just defeat the other side but i think what i what i walk away from this is that there's no permanent escape outside of leaving politics altogether and doing war which i guess is like the civil war but what you said uh recent just now 
was really, really insightful to me, I think, which is the process of polarization transforms the actors. And, I, and I'm wondering if I've been missing that and that and that could be, in fact, what ushers in this politics of production that I see is so damaging. And maybe that, you know, the questions that I'm going to be asking moving forward is, you know, again, I'm going to continue with this. Like, what is polarization? Like, I don't I think we throw that word around a lot. Are we, in fact, polarized in the way that we think we are? And is the problem with polarization, the conflict that uh, is produced by people who disagree in a big, fabulous nation like ours? Or is it something else? And if it is correct that polarization leads to transforming the actors and leads to a politics as production in a way that we undermine our institutions, why does it do it today but not in the past? You know, so I really think you've given, I mean, I, you've given me so much to think about and I'm so grateful for that. And I want to really thank you for uh, joining us today. Well, thank you. I really uh, enjoyed the conversation as well and learned from you all too and appreciated hearing your insights and you pushing me on my own thoughts. So thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you. And this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.